as we return to the letter to the Hebrews, we're going to do what we did last week. We're going to read in three different places in the Holy Scriptures. <clears throat> We're going to read first from Zechariah chapter 6. And that will be verses 12 and 13. And then we will be reading Psalm 110. And then we will read the first four verses of the epistle to the Hebrews. <clears throat> I will be reading all of these this morning. We will not read them together, but I do pray that you will read them uh, silently as I read them aloud. So would you please stand one more time. Let's give our attention to God's word beginning in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12. Verse 12. This is the word of God. And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch... He shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne. And he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And now Psalm 110, <clears throat> verses 1 and 2, and then verse 4. The Lord said unto my Lord, now please note, the first Lord is all caps. The second Lord is not, it's lowercase. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand. Until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. And verse 4. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And now Hebrews chapter 1 <clears throat> verse 1 God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son whom he hath appointed heir of all things by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person 
and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Please remain standing unless you have a condition that makes it difficult for you to continue standing. And then please feel free to sit down. Let us unite our hearts as we come to God. Our Father in heaven, we do hallow thy name this morning. We thank thee for the word that tells us of the kingdom that was coming, the kingdom that has come, the kingdom that will be consummated. And I praise thee that we are one day closer to that glorious consummation. My Father in heaven, we do love thee and we thank thee for the blessings that thou dost pour out upon us. We thank thee for the comforts that we have, homes that are dry in the rain, that are cool in the heat. Father, we thank thee for places that we can be warm when it is cold. Father, it is not the case of all this world, and it is certainly not the case of all thy children. And Father, we pray, pray that we would be a people concerned about the state and condition of our fellow humans across this planet. First, in their physical, but most importantly, in their spiritual state. May our hearts yearn. May our hearts cry out for the salvation of the lost. Father, we thank thee for those who have professed faith in thee in this place. It is my heart's desire that the preaching of thy word this morning will fill them with greater zeal, greater love for thee, greater pursuit of holiness. Lord, surely if there were ever a day when those who name the name of Christ should be pursuing holiness and speaking of him at every opportunity. It is this day. Father, O oh blessed Son, Holy Spirit, Thou art God. There is none else. Father, we know that Thy precious Son announced that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man, no one, cometh unto thee but by him. May that message 
conquer this world. Father, may thy army, not the army with guns and bombs and technological weapons, but may thy army of spirit-filled soldiers spread out through this world and with the sword of the Spirit do all that we can by thy grace and by thy power to destroy the works of the devil. Help us to take this glorious gospel. Help us to live the truth before our family before our neighbors, before those with whom we work. Father, mature us, grow us out of any hypocrisy that crosses our lips, rises in our hearts. Father, now, Only thou can speak from thy word to raise the dead. Wouldst thou raise the dead that are here? Those, O Lord, whose eyes are shut to their spiritual condition. Those, O Lord, who do not realize that the power of darkness holds them in bondage. Break those chains today. Lord, send the light to those who do not know thee. Send the gospel light, O light of the world. And for thy dear children, Lord, how I pray with all my heart, whatever week they've had, whether joyful experiences, unclear experiences, sad heartbreaking experiences, whatever they have lived, I pray that they find their comfort in thee today, that their heart would lift up with joy and praise and adoration. I thank thee for the joyful and hearty singing today. And I pray, O oh God, now that we have sung now that we have prayed, now that we have heard thy word read, I pray that the mighty power of thy spirit would move upon every soul in whatever condition and deal with us according to thy grace. May our love for thee and one another abound, overflow, Pour out of our hearts as connected to a ceaseless and eternal fountain of love. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated.
God speaks. He is not silent, and his word is truth. In time past, God spoke his truth by his servants, the prophets. In these last days, God has spoken by his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. Those should never be words that simply land in our brains and die with some of the other thoughts that go the way of the world. Those are words to which we should react, to which we should respond. Those are words that should move us to some action. If you do not know Christ, he has said there's no other door open for you into life eternal than himself. If you know him, you should be living in the way, living by the truth, and pursuing a life of holiness with all your heart. These words demand that you do something. If they're just lying, moldering in your brain, they're not doing you any good. In time past, the prophets faithfully spoke God's words. In these last days, Jesus faithfully spoke God's words. And in time past, the prophets spoke of a coming priestly king. And in these last days, Jesus is that priestly king. Both the prophets and Jesus delivered God's revelation to their generation. But as the Holy Spirit makes clear in our text, God's revelation in Christ and by Christ is greater by far than the prophets. The title of our sermon is Seven Descriptions of Christ, King, King. Now this is part two. May the God of our Lord Jesus Christ May the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give unto us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of our understanding being enlightened that we may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints those words demand a response too. <clears throat> God who speaks, God who has spoken to us by the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father of glory is the only one who can give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation. We can read this book all day and not understand spiritually one syllable of it. 
we need our Heavenly Father to help us understand, not simply read, but study and understand this book. This is God speaking in our day. We need the eyes of our understanding enlightened so that we know the hope of our calling. We have the greatest hope. There is no other hope. And but the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saint. We are rich people. Now, it's true, living in this country, <clears throat> we are richer than the world has ever known per capita. The people in this country live like kings. Yes, you do. <clears throat> but we're richer, and we don't want those comforts to keep us from understanding the riches that we have in Christ. So, may he help us to see the exceeding greatness and may we experience the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe. It's available. Or may he help us now as we hear his word. We have, as last week, one main heading. Christ ascended into glory and now reigns in splendor as God's son. Now repeat. Christ ascended into glory and now reigns in splendor as God's son. Our text says that in these beautiful heavenly words, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, last time we considered this text under one major heading, which was, the sun rose from the grave, resurrection, ascended into glory, ascension, sat down on the right hand of God. So the themes are very similar, but we want to expand on it just a little bit as we come near the end of our messages in the first few verses. <clears throat> Under that heading last week, we learned that God the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, united with humanity in the womb of a young Jewish virgin named Mary. In other words, the Son of God became the Son of Man. You will remember, or at least I'll remind you, and then you'll remember, <clears throat> there, is two, there are two distinctions of existence in this world. There's creator and creation, nothing else. <clears throat> and the creator is alone, the creator. Everything else is creation. So as God, the creator, he never becomes. He always is. And yet here we have the son of God becoming. Only creation becomes. 
So how does the Son of God become the Son of Man? How can the Creator unite with creation? It's called the incarnation of Jesus Christ the Lord. He is the God-man. And He became the God-man. His Godness never became. It always has been, it is now, it always will be. But when he united with humanity, someone and something that had never existed before, existed. The God-man. By the way, that's the only Savior. That is the only, only Jesus who can save your soul. There are a lot of false Jesuses out there. But there's only one that saves. So <clears throat> the Son of God united with humanity. This is one of the reasons he loved the, the, the phrase Son of Man so much. He used it more than any other title that he applied to himself. He called himself the Son of Man, extraordinary when you think about it. The eternal God who created all things calls himself the Son of Man. Well, that being the case, the Son did this to accomplish God's eternal purpose of saving his people from their sins. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, because he shall save his people from their sins. Only the God-man could have accomplished that. No one else could have done it. And that's one of the reasons that those who are born of his spirit love him so. He saved them. He wasn't just a word in a building called a church. He is the living God who opened the heart of his people and brought them to himself with amazing grace. Jesus became the sin-bearing substitute on Calvary's cross. <clears throat> After Christ paid the penalty for the sins of his people, with his precious blood, God raised him from the dead. Once again, we can hear certain things to the point. Unfortunately, this is the way our flesh works sometimes. We get kind of like a big spiritual callus. We can hear that God raised his son from the dead and not bat an eyelid. But that was the message that changed the Roman Empire. And the world at that time. Don't become so used to hearing it. That you lose the grandeur. The majesty. The holiness. The sheer God power. That made that happen. God raised him. From the dead. 
God's Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made the seed of David according to the flesh, was declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrected God-man then ascended into heaven in the presence of his disciples. He was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. This is beautiful. Jesus entered the realms of splendor and eternal glory when he had by himself purged our sins. Now, this is where we really need to connect. All of this brings us to understand, I trust, that simple clause and the one that follows it with greater light. When he had by himself purged our sins, everything that we've just said is what he did and far more that we might have everlasting life. He accomplished our purification from the defilement of our filthy thoughts, our filthy words, and our filthy lives and cleansed us. So, that clause goes right into the next one. And he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. He purged our sins. He wiped them all away. His precious blood gloriously cleansed us. Now, We learned last time that when he sat down, his priesthood and kingship came together. And we just sang that in our last two hymns and hinted at it and sang it a bit in the first two. <clears throat> we sing it. Do, do we think about it? Do we remember it? His priesthood and his kingship came together in an extraordinary way. And finally, we learned that when he sat down, he fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah. Zechariah 6, which we read, He shall sit and rule upon his throne. He shall sit... Christ sat down and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne. Brethren, God promised in time past through the prophets that the Messiah would be a priest upon his kingly throne. And we live at the time in these last days where what Zechariah said is now the reality by which we preach. He shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne. And there was also the fulfillment of Psalm 110, 
verse 1. As I said last week, that's a very, very important psalm throughout the New Testament. But especially here, it works as part of the structure of this very letter. There's regular referral to it. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So Christ is at the right hand of God. He is sitting on his throne and he is both king and priest. Now he's also still our prophet. But what the book of Hebrews focuses on is what Zechariah said and what the psalmist says about his being a kingly priest and a priestly king. It is how he saved us. So the son's humiliation and exaltation come together. That's where we pick up. Once again, let us listen closely to the text. God's holy words. When he had by himself, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. The first clause, when he had purged our sins, speaks of Christ's humiliation. So we want to talk about his humiliation for a few minutes. Just to make a brief summary, because it is his earthly life. Spurgeon's catechism, which is also known as Keech's catechism, asks in question 26, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? The words humiliation and exaltation have been applied to the Lord Jesus Christ For centuries, it's astounding that modern Christians know so little of the grammar. Don't misunderstand how I'm saying that. The language of uh, history, the history of God's people. I'm talking about those who know and believe the word of God. They spoke of Christ in his life in this world. They spoke of Christ when he rose again and was seated at the Father's right hand. His humiliation and his exaltation. So, in what did Christ's humiliation consist? Spurgeon's catechism answers, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born. How is that humiliating? How was his being born humiliating? Because he that fills the heaven, united with a babe, united with a cell. I don't know how the Holy Spirit worked that miracle, and I'm not going to try. But he did. And it was just the very fact that he took on humanity was limiting He had to be fed. He had to be changed. He grew up. It's astounding what he faced as becoming a man. 
just his very birth was a humiliation, a lowering. So he was, it consisted in his being born and that in a low condition. That means to poor parents. Made under the law. He gave the law and subjected himself to it. We don't often think like that, do we? Undergoing the miseries of this life. He walked everywhere he went. Except we do know that he rode a donkey into Jerusalem shortly before his crucifixion. But most of the time they walked. They walked everywhere on dusty roads, sweating. This is God united with humanity. Everything about his human life was humiliation at some level, even if it was a good thing. Who wants to swap the glories of heaven, the praise of heaven, for the spittle of men in this world? Undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross. In being buried, he that spoke and sustained life was laid in a tomb. His deity continued to sustain the universe while his humanity lay cold in the grave. Say, I, I have trouble understanding that. Good. It's because our God is God, not just a big man. He's not just like the Greek and Roman gods who are just a little above us. No. He's God in a human I don't want to say God in a human body. God joined with humanity. He wasn't a ghost in a machine. So the scriptures are clear. The eternal son of God was indeed God the son. And his life in this world was humiliation. In light of the glory. The stunning eternal beauty of who and what he is. We have seen that that the Son's deity is revealed in Holy Scripture, which we considered in our messages concerning the Trinity and Christology. Jesus was indeed despised and rejected of men. He that knew the sound of millions upon millions of angels and citizens of heaven Praising and adoring and glorifying him. Was despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was born and laid in a manger. And and children, a manger is a trough for animal food. We virtually deify some of those things today. 
It was what they fed animals in. How's that for hygiene? Laid in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. He suffered. It was humiliation from the moment he was born. The eternal son of God was born to a virgin in a poor family. When Mary went to the temple for her purification offering after the birth of her son, she brought a pair of turtle doves. Now we can read over that and and miss its significance. It means she was poor. She couldn't afford a lamb. So God made provision for poor people those who were not well off, who could still come and do the purification ritual. Two birds as opposed to a lamb. Jesus was born to people who were not wealthy. Jesus' parents and siblings did not understand him, though Mary would ponder things that he said in her heart. In fact, his siblings did not believe him. John chapter 7 verse 5 says, For neither did his brethren believe in him. They challenged him. Go on up to the feast. If you want people to know who you are, right? You want everybody to know who you are? Go up to the feast. It was mockery. God in the flesh was mocked. These are remarkable things, brethren. The majority of Jews did not believe on him. They loved his miracles, but they did not repent and believe on him. For example, Matthew chapter 11. This is just one of many examples. Verses 20 and 23. Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. Do you hear that? Where most of his miracles were done. They wouldn't repent of their sins. They loved the the miracles. They loved being fed. They loved to bring... Uh, grandma and, and have her healed. Brother, sister, son, baby, touch my baby and heal him, please. They loved all that, but they would not repent. He began to upbraid those cities, to rebuke them. Wherein those mighty works were done because they repented not. Thou Capernaum, he said, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. I don't believe that that was hyperbole. I believe exactly what Christ said there. They knew that Genesis made clear that God rained molten lava out of the sky or something like it 
on people and completely burned up the land. And God said, and, and Jesus said, you know, if I had done in their city what you have experienced, those cities would still be around. Do you get that? I, w- I want you to because you need to look at your nation right now. Your nation is an, an abomination to God. An offense to the Almighty. And He has done remarkable things in this country. Which have all been squandered. Nevertheless, Christ could say, Christ, the living Son of God, united to humanity. In Psalm 22, 6 and 7, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. They hated their Creator and didn't recognize Him. We wouldn't have either. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. None of us, well, let me put it this way. Many of us don't like to be teased. But we especially don't like being laughed at by others. Especially in a group that we're trying to be held in esteem. Or, sad to say, thought of as being cool. We don't want anybody to make us look stupid. I didn't need anybody like that. I could do it myself. But what I'm saying to you is this. Someone who did nothing but heal the sick, raise the dead, touch the lepers, and their skin was made whole. He was despised, mocked. They laughed at him in his life, but especially as he hung on the cross of Calvary. In the Garden of Gethsemane, before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed, and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. Most of the religious leaders of his days disbelieved him, hated him, mocked him, spit on him and beat him. Then they turned him over to the Roman government for more, for crucifixion. The Romans mocked him. The Romans beat him. The Romans scourged him and crucified him. Jesus was crucified as a criminal and hung on the cross between two thieves who also mocked him. He suffered. He suffered. Why? Because you and I sin. Because we do things that God says, I've made a place for people who think and talk and act like you. It's called hell. God became man. 
to save us from that. Jesus suffered for hours on the cross as God the Father poured out his wrath on Jesus' body and on his soul. Then Luke 23 verse 46 tells us that Jesus cried with a loud voice. He said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. I've thought about that many times. Why did he cry out with a loud voice? I'm sure there are dozens of commentaries with suggestions. But I think when, and this is just my thinking, but I believe it works with the text, and it works with Jesus' life. What happened when he came out of the garden? John's Gospel tells us, He knew what was going to happen to him. And he went forth. And he said, who are you looking for? He said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. And they all fell to the ground. There was a reason he did that. Because no one took him. He gave himself to it. Do we get that? That's important. They didn't have to drag him off with all their arms. He said, to bring swords and all of that for this. He went willingly like a lamb to the slaughter. Now, I don't want to add to anything that God's word said. I just ponder and think, why did Jesus cry out so loud. I think it was for the same reason when he came out of the garden. He didn't want anybody thinking that Rome killed him. He gave up his spirit. That's what the text says. He cried out to his father and said, receive my spirit. I think that spoke to everybody there. They had to at least think, what is he talking about? Well, whether that is the case or no, he said, Father, into my hand, into thy hands I commend my spirit. I give my spirit up. And he gave up the ghost. Jesus was buried in a in a borrowed tomb. Christ's days on earth are called his humiliation because the eternal Son of God united with humanity for the purpose of suffering and dying. From his earliest days until he gave up that spirit, everything in his life was to save his people. And All the suffering, every suffering from the smallest things, from things that people didn't see to the things that they could not miss as he hung upon that cross. All of it could only have been done by the God-man. By the God-man. For that reason, Hebrews says, when he had by himself 
purged our sins. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 8 captures Christ's humiliation uh, in, in just four verses. He says, let this mind be in you. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Made himself of no, he humbled himself. Made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a slave, of a servant. And was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. There it is again. And became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. This is his humiliation. God, God became man. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld him. We beheld his glory. It was, of the, it was the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. No one has ever been like him and no one will ever be like him in the sense that we will be gods. We will be like him because we will be glorified, but we won't be gods. So then, when he had by himself purged our sins is important. It's his humiliation. And then he sat down. That takes us to his exaltation. Let's press on to that now. This is his exaltation. Spurgeon's Catechism question 27 asks, wherein consists Christ's exaltation? It answers, Christ's exaltation consists in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in ascending up into heaven and sitting at the right hand of God the Father and in coming to judge the world at the last day. It should thrill our souls that Christ is coming again. It should thrill our souls. You know, you know if there's someone that you love family member, friend, you know if you don't see them for a long time, you start longing to see them. You want to hear their voice. You want to talk with them. You want to smile with them. You want to enjoy your time with them. How much more the one who loved us from eternity that we should be longing for him, that we should be thinking, the one who loved me so, the one who died for me, the, wonder, the one who underwent his extraordinary humiliation that I might wear his righteousness. Let me ask you, let me ask me, do we love Jesus and long for him or is he just that word? Floating around in our minds once in a while. Oh, we, can get, we can get locked into all kinds of things in this world. And it's true that there are things that can distract us. And there are good things that can actually hold our attention. But what's gooder than Christ? What's greater than Christ? 
What's more wonderful than Christ? What's more beautiful than Christ? What's more glorious than Christ? What's more lovable in the best sense of that term? We like to apply it to puppies. But there's no one worthy of our love like Jesus Christ the Lord. Oh, do you love him? I hope you do. I hope you love him. I hope that you talk with him daily. I hope that you walk with him and encourage him uh, and, and are encouraged by him in your walk. Well, <clears throat> let's think on this briefly. The resurrection of our Lord was the greatest miracle in the history of the world, especially because of who and what he was. And the New Testament scriptures make much of the resurrection. Now, I don't want, if you're only half listening right now, either completely shut down or listen really carefully so that you don't miss what I'm saying to you. I don't want to diminish this. But the fact is, Rightfully so, we are very crucifixion-oriented. And we love, we love that Christ died for us and bore our sins on the cross. I'm not diminishing that one bit. What I'm trying to do is, by God's grace, is to push up the almost forgotten resurrection and say, uh, your salvation's not just in the cross, he rose from the dead, God receiving his sacrifice. When you read the book of Acts, you will see the resurrection preached over and over and over, even sometimes when the cross is not mentioned. Oh, we could go through a number of verses for that, but let me just try to set this before you in a balanced way, if I can. Christ's humiliation coupled with his exaltation. For I delivered unto you, says Paul, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. What's that? That's his humiliation. And that he was buried, humiliation. And that he rose again the third day. Exaltation. We should be thrilled about this. <clears throat> Every single Lord's Day. Why is it called the Lord's Day? It was the day he rose from the dead. We love the cross. May we ever praise and thank and magnify God for the cross. But may we ramp up our love and our esteem and our glorying in a resurrected Savior. He's alive. In death, he saved us. He rose again. I, a friend of mine, I've said this before, but it's worth repeating a friend of mine was moving to another state looking for a church. He said, would you please go to the Internet and look at their website and read their confession of faith and tell me what you think? I said, OK. So I took a little time and went and I read and it was heavy evangelical. We would call it today. 
It was a it was a pretty modern evangelical church, but you know it's like we believe the scriptures are the inspired infallible word of God, and they were going through it. It was like okay, 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 and it got to where the, it, it spoke of Christ. Our sins are pardoned because Jesus Christ died upon the cross, and then it went to His coming again. Not one word about the resurrection. I was astounded. It was like um. Is that a mistake? What happened? <laughs> but I mean, to a certain degree, a lot of preaching is like that. It's just about the cross. But it doesn't hold forth the glory and the majesty and the joy that Jesus didn't stay on the cross. He didn't stay in the tomb. He rose in triumph over death. Praise the Lord. And because he lives, we will live also, the scriptures say. I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection, said Christ. Brethren, let's never forget the resurrection. Every Lord's Day is resurrection day. It is the first day of the week. It is glorious, and we should rejoice in it. So, the glory of Christ's resurrection is seen in the emphasis that the apostles' preaching focuses on. It appears in the major sermons throughout the book of Acts. Read it. Sit down one day, and if you can read through all 28 chapters, read right straight on through and look for the resurrection, and you'll be amazed at how often it appears. Just a a few examples. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and signs, miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. In other words, this was the purpose. We've been talking about God's purpose. Here it is. It's announced being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death. There it is. God raised him up. You tell people that back in those days. They would just think you were crazy, wouldn't they? Wait, you're telling me that the only way I can be right with your God is that I have to believe on a man who was crucified as a criminal and now he's alive again? Really? Really, you want me to believe that? You're telling me that this immortal soul that you tell me that I have, it hangs on that story? That's exactly right. And it needs to be preached. And it needs to be preached loudly in this day. Jesus didn't come into this world to help you feel better about yourself. He came to save you from your crimes against God. You lose that, you have lost the Christ of the Bible. Oh, my friends. Acts chapter 3, verse 14 Peter preached to the Jews, you denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God had raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. We saw it. We knew him. We walked with him. Were eyewitnesses of all this. Acts chapter 13, verses 28 through 30 tells us that Paul preached 
Uh, you killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead. That's the part. Resurrection 13, 28 tells us that Paul preached in Antioch, Pisidia. And it says, and though they found no cause of death in him, says Paul, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. That would be a miserable story if it stopped there. But he says, but God raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead. The resurrection is his exaltation. It's the beginning of his exaltation. We see him on the cross. He says, it is finished. He cries out to his his father. That would be a sad ending. But it isn't a sad ending. It is the best ending. God raised him from the dead. God raised him up. He was alive. Acts chapter 17, verse 31. On Mars Hill, Paul preached that God had appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he had ordained, whereof he hath given us assurance unto all men in that he raised him from the dead. The seal, the beauty that this is my work. He died upon Calvary's cross and I raised him again. That's what the father did. That's what the father did. Your salvation is all about a living savior, not a dead one. Well, having considered Christ's resurrection just a little bit, we have considered his ascension. We talked about it last week, so I won't go any further with that, but that too. Remember his exaltation. His exaltation, he goes down into the tomb. And then he comes up and then he rises up to glory. Resurrection, ascension. He, oh, I don't know what it was like when he got into heaven. Be wonderful to know what was, what was it like? Did millions of angels all at once shout with all the volume that they had? What happened? It wasn't like he walked in the back door, Right? He came into glory, received up, it says in the scriptures, received up into glory. He had conquered. He conquered death. And then he sat down. That sitting down was the finish of that mission. It was the finishing of that mission. Now, uh -uh. I want to talk just very briefly and then move on about Christ's enthronement. It's mentioned so often in Hebrews that it's vital for us to recognize as we're looking at many of the themes that go all the way through this wonderful letter. And it's right here, this amazing work of God and his promise 
that comes to us, you'll recognize it when you hear it. Chapter 1 of Hebrews, verse 13 says, But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Psalm 110. It's right there. There it is again. Now, of the things which have been spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. His enthronement, his enthronement, this speaks of him being a king. Remember, priests had no chairs in their work. They were always on their feet because their work was never done. Jesus says, Christ, is, his work is done. And so he is sitting, not only finished with that aspect of his mission, but now he is ruling and reigning. Well, this is Zechariah. This is Psalm 110. We're seeing the fulfillment of God's work in Christ Jesus. Chapter 10, verse 11, it says, Every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. This, this, this incredible psalm is, like I said last week, it's either 22 or 27 times, depending on who you read, either directly quoted or it was alluded to. Here it is in Hebrews. Uh, it isn't that the, the writer just needs something to say. He's telling you over and over that Jesus reigns. And that he's reigning in the midst of his enemies. And that he's going to destroy and bring everything together when he returns. On one hand, we say, even so, come Lord Jesus. And yet at the same time, if we realize what we were saying in its full and extraordinary moment, it's awesome in the most important sense of that word. Uh -uh. Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witness, let, uh, witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finish of our, of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. Well, the Son is enthroned and rules in the midst of his enemies now. I will bring this to an end. Let me simply say, <clears throat> Jesus is in control. He's not sitting at the right hand of the Father and saying, oh man, this is really a complex mess. How are we going to deal with this? How am I, um, you know, I have to do a lot of thinking here. Now, that's me. That's not him. He looks at these things, and he knows exactly what he's going to do, when, how, and where. 
So he's ruling. He's reigning. The father's promised he's going to reign in the midst of his enemies. And he's going to be moving this toward those days when everything will be set right, when he comes back, and when he sets up the consummation of his kingdom, eternity with Christ. Let me leave you with two applications. Jesus has risen from the dead. He has ascended into heaven. He is seated now at his Father's right hand until all his enemies are under his feet. And he will do so until that final stage of his exaltation, his return for the day of judgment and the ushering in of eternity and the consummation of that glorious kingdom. So, two short applications for you. Number one, because what we've been seeing is his humiliation and his exaltation. We want to remember also that his priesthood and his kingdom and his kingship are united together. First, our interceding priest can never die and his perfect sacrifice saves forever. That's a statement, while it's not scripture, is in harmony with the scriptural statements. It demands that you reply, that you respond. We have a high priest who's interceding for us right now. Whatever your condition is, whether you are on the height of the mountains with joy or whether you are down in the slew of despond, whether you are down because you can't seem to overcome what's happening in your life or what's your, some sin you are wrestling with, you have a high priest who doesn't take a vacation. You have a high priest who never takes a break. And he's interceding. This is exactly what that famous passage in Hebrews 7 says. It says, And they truly, meaning the Levitical priests, were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by raising of death. One priest had come, he'd spend his course doing the, all of his Levitical work, and then uh, shortly, no doubt, shortly after he went through his whole uh, course in the years that he labored, and with that many years left, they'd die. They had to constantly be replaced. That will never happen to us. Our priest cannot die. He's conquered death. They were truly many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, he is God, the God man. Because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Do you notice it says, but this man, man, continueth ever. An unchangeable priesthood, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. To the uttermost. With my sins, with your sins, you need someone who gets all the way down to every single one of them. And the blood of Christ does. If he missed one, we would be forever lost. Oh, my friends. 
he is able to save to the uttermost them that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. His eye is never off you, brother. His eye is never off you, sister. If you know him in the great love with which he came into this world, he now sits in glory, having received all authority, and you are in his sights. He will guide your steps. Look to him. Cry out to him. Know that when you fail, he didn't, and he lives forever. Our king, and, and next and last is our holy and almighty king is altogether unique in the universe. Our king. There have been many kings throughout the history of this world. But our great and glorious king is radically and eternally different from the kings of this world. I repeat, your hope is not politicians. Now, it's true. Depending on who's governing, we may have more or less liberty. All that's true. We have a responsibility to hire responsible people, to vote in responsible people. But that's not your ultimate hope. The kings of the world rarely govern in righteousness. Our king reigns. He rules in righteousness always. Always. Always makes the right decision regardless of what you think about what's going on in your life right now. The, our kings, the kings of this world, want to tax us and become rich from us. Our king has made us heirs with him of the universe. You believe that? It says we are joint heirs with Christ. Everything that's his is ours. Do you believe that? That's what our king has brought us into. That's why we will rule with him for eternity. The kings of the earth want us to die for them and their wars and their safety. Our king died for us so that we can triumph over our enemies. And the kings of the earth want us to shed our blood so that they can live. Our king shed his blood so that we can live forever. He accomplished our purification, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. He rules as a priest. He is our king and high priest. Let us look to him by faith and live. Amen. Oh, Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the love that was poured out upon us. Help us to walk in it with joy and thanksgiving. And now, O oh God, I pray with all my heart that thou wouldst bless thy people, that they would have sweet and lovely thoughts of thee throughout the day. And may we encourage one another in the faith.
In Jesus' name, amen. If you would please stand with me. Now the God of peace, peace. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Make you perfect in every good work to do his will. Working in you. I'm so thankful for those words. Working in you. That which is well pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's go in the name of Christ.